Kia ora koutou. you are with the panel on RNZ National. Susie Ferguson in for Wallace Chapman this afternoon. And lots of you are getting in touch actually about hitchhiking. This uh, person on text 2101 says, I p- picked up a hitchhiker once. We got chatting. I said to him, aren't you worried I could be a serial killer? He said, I figured the chances of both of us being one are pretty low. Not sure that fills me with joy. Uh, also, of course, we were speaking uh, about the lunar eclipse with uh, Dr. Rangi Matamua just before the news there. Uh, this text in says, The loss of connection that Rangi refers to is largely responsible for the gloaming, global warming crisis of today. We are going to be talking about climate change a little bit later on. Uh, at around hmm, what time? Just actually, just after the headlines at half past, we'll be talking about the situation with flood protection in New Zealand. Of course, this as the climate change conference COP27 gets underway in Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt. So do get in touch with us. Would you pick up a hitchhiker? And if you did, how did it go? Text us those stories. Two one zero one. Also, the panel at rnz.co.nz. We have Anjum Raman and Connor English with us today, and we're going to be talking banks next because, of course, households may be struggling with the cost of living. The banks, though, are coining it, and they've been called out by the Prime Minister for making large profits. Just to give you a bit of the sense of the proportion that we're talking about here, Westpac posting a billion-dollar full-year profit. That's up 12%. ANZ's bumped recently by 20% to $2.3 billion. Bernard Hickey, producer of the Daily Economics newsletter and podcast The Kaka on Substack, is with us. Kia ora, Bernard. Kia ora. Um, how is it that banks' profits are outstripping inflation? Well, this is all about um, what happened at the beginning of COVID and in 2021, when the Reserve Bank encouraged banks to lend into the housing market to try and boost the wealth of homeowners, which was designed to rescue the New Zealand economy. It did it really well (laughs) because Mm -hmm. the economy bounced back fast. Well, what that meant was that the banks now had a lot more lending into the housing market. And... As interest rates have gone up in the last year, what typically happens all around the world is that when official interest rates are put up, then banks tend to increase their net interest margins. So a combination of a lot more lending out there because of the way the Reserve Bank responded Hmm. to the COVID crisis and higher interest rates, that's a double whammy, which means higher profits. And the banks here are now making more profits relative to their assets, so their profitability, not supposed, not 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 its total profits, but profitability, are even higher than their parents' profits are in Australia, and at the top end of profitability mm. around the developed world. Is it justifiable, though? Well, it, it is if you believe that the New Zealand economy should be a housing market with bits tacked on. And if your main aim in life is to get hold of some leveraged residential land and make a tax-free profit on it, then you need the banks to do that. And no one should be too surprised if when our economy gets into a bit of trouble, the Reserve Bank uses the banks to pump up the economy again. Mm. And therefore, they're a necessary evil to keep our economy going when it is a housing market with bits tacked on. Would we, though, be more worried, should we be more worried, if they were doing badly? Yeah, that's one of the concerns, that if you have very unprofitable banks, then it's an unstable banking system. 
Mm. And that's one of the benefits. So just in the last week or so, the Reserve Bank has published its stress tests uh, on the banks. So they do a, um, it's a bit like a war game where they work out what would happen to the banks if we had a 9.3% unemployment rate, three times more than we've got pretty much, uh, if we had a 47% fall in house prices, and we also had at the same time a cyber attack that cost $1.3 So how would the banks cope with that? Would they see their capital reserves wiped out? Would they be profitable? And what the Reserve Bank found was that even with all of those things, plus an 8.4% mortgage rate, it turns out the banks would only be unprofitable and only very slightly unprofitable for one of the next four years. And actually, in total, uh, the banks would still make about $28 billion over those four years. So they're so profitable that even when the world ends, they'd be fine. Uh, stay with us, Bernard. Uh, our panellists today, Anjum Rahman and Connor English. Connor, I mean... What do you think of this one? Is it fair enough? They're a business after all. Uh, well, look, if they're making profits, uh, you know, that's, a, that's the role of businesses to make profits. Um, when they make losses, uh, you don't want them to come to the taxpayer like they did in the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought that was repugnant what happened in the banking sector, particularly in the US, where these guys profit, you know, privatised profits on the way up, socialised losses on the way down. Mm. Uh, you don't want that. So if they're going to take the profits, then they need to take the losses. And the government should not come in and rescue a bank that has been reckless lending, uh, you know, and then gets itself in, into trouble. So uh, I, I guess that's my first my first point. Mm. But the other thing, you know, I used to be an independent advisor of the Reserve Bank on monetary policy. Indeed. And um, I think the, the, the thing that I'm interested in is not, not, not so much the capital, um, not the profits, but how they're allocating their capital and what they're going to do as the economy comes under pressure. So they have the capital asset ratio, which dictates mm. how much money they have to have in the bank for every dollar they've got out lending. But then they have the lending ratio, which talks about which um, is how much money they make for every dollar that they lend to, say, the residential mortgage market or the commercial market or the agriculture market. And what you've seen with, say, the likes of ANZ, 66% of their lending is to the residential market because they can lend out the most to to to, um, to borrowers for every dollar they have in the bank. Mm. And, you know, they've only got 17% in business loans because that's the least profitable. So I think one of the things the Reserve Bank needs to look at is how the banks are allocating their capital. And that's something um, they do a review of, but I think we just might have that balance wrong. To Bernard's point about how residential prices are going up and there's a lot of capital going in there, it's because the banks are incentivised to do that by the Reserve Bank because that's the most profitable lending they do and the least risk. Mm. The least risk. Anjum, is this fair enough for the banks? Is this just something that happens because they're a business and you know profits go up and profits go down? Um, I don't think it's fair enough. And I think it's not just banks that we need to look at around excess profits. It's supermarkets, it's companies like Amazon and so on. Um, 
it's interesting with that time with inflation, how much of inflation is being driven by excess profits um, and, and the fact that some of these companies actually take money out of our economy and pay absolutely no tax. Um, so, you know, there, there is this whole notion of social contract and the social licence to operate, mm-hmm. um, but, but no government is really taking this on. I would rather see that we supported banks when they were down so that the, the people who would lose if a bank fails is actually people on the street. Um, they, they shouldn't have to lose. And I'd like to see them not making those excessive profits um, and making sure that money is going back. I mean, who, you know, who, who um, is charged the most? I, as an accountant that I've been most of my life, mm. um, Poor people have high overdraft fees. They get penalty overdraft charges, mm. penalty interest, high interest rates because they can't negotiate and have no asset base. Um, really, banks are trying to price them out and send them to their competitors and, and making profits off that. There's an area where we could be like, hey, guys, how about we don't do that? Mm. Connor, you're nodding your head here. Uh, yeah, and I think look, one of the things that the government have done, which has been sort of received in mixed ways, is the responsible lending um, mm. uh, legislation and you, and with uh, people who uh, you know the loan sharks if you like uh, are having to comply with with rules and regulations so that people aren't able to borrow when they're clearly not able to pay it back uh, and that you know that washed into the main banks which was a wee bit of an issue um, so yeah I, I, I sort of half pie agree with <laughs> <laughs> what about you Bernard I mean it's it's a pretty hard you know pretty bitter pill for people to swallow when you know so many households are doing it tough with the rising cost of living and then you see the banks making these thumping great profits yeah it's tough if you are one of those with a lot of uh, debt and also if you've got some savings in the bank and you're unhappy with the amount of term deposits you get back because what we know is that when the Reserve Bank puts up the official cash rate, those so-called net interest margins rise. So that means the increase gets passed on to borrowers, but it may not be passed on quite so much to people who have their savings in the bank. We always forget about the savers, uh, saving side of the equation when we think about banks. Mm. But it's worth remembering here that the banks effectively are granted a licence to operate by the New Zealand government, in effect, the Reserve Bank. They couldn't make any money, any profits, unless they had that publicly granted licence. So when the Prime Minister talks about a social licence, she is talking about a slightly vague public relations style uh, thing. But in reality, it's the actual banking licence that's very valuable for a bank. And uh, as as Connor uh, mentioned, uh, it's true our banks weren't formally bailed out in 2008, 2009, but the government did come up at very short notice with a government guarantee on retail and wholesale deposits in 2008-2009 and is going through the process at the moment of building a deposit insurance scheme for the banks. So you could argue that the banks currently have an implied government guarantee Mm. which they effectively don't pay for. And you've got to remember that when the Reserve Bank intervened dramatically in covid to slash interest rates to print $55 billion. It also opened up a lending facility for banks called the Funding for Lending Scheme, which linked banks' money at the same rate as the official cash rate, so very discounted. That is still open. The banks have received $16.4 billion worth of subsidised lending directly from the Reserve Bank. And only in the last week, 
um, banks have borrowed $400 million from the Reserve Bank. So the banks should be grateful to, to the public <laughs> and to the taxpayer, A, for their licence to print money, which they effectively have in the banking licence, and the support they got from both the Reserve Bank and the government in implied guarantees and subsidised lending through the last two and a half years. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Bernard Hickey there, uh, of course, who does the Daily Economics newsletter, indeed the podcast, The Kaka, on Substack. And what do you think? Is it fair enough that the banks are making big profits or does it all leave a bit of a bad taste? Love to know what you think. 2101 to get in touch with us here in the studio or the panel at rnz.co.nz. You are indeed listening to RNZ National. Connor English and Anjum Rahman with us this afternoon. I'm Susie Ferguson in for Wallace Chapman. It's 20 past four now and... Uh, Let's change tack, because would you buy a ticket for an event that you can't attend? And there's a bit of a catch yet. Wellington City Mission is hoping to sell out Sky Stadium's 34,000 seats on December the 21st. It is all in the name of charity, and they're hoping the venue stays empty. Murray Edridge, the City Missioner, is with us. Kia ora, how are you, Murray? Good afternoon, Susie. Well, indeed, thank you. Good, good. Now, what are you up to? Why is this? <laughs> We've come up with this cool idea, and um, and the idea is that two of the things that Wellington Wellingtonians are most passionate about are helping those in the community that need a bit of bit of extra assistance, and also filling the stadium. And the idea of combining these two things and saying let's have an event that doesn't happen and that nobody goes to, and it doesn't happen because a hundred percent of the proceeds mm. go to go to the city mission and enable us to do the work that we do. Um, we've had the stadium, Sky Stadium, and Ticketek come in behind this. Um, you know, you guys have been talking about corporate responsibility. Here's mm. a couple of corporates that have put their hand up and said, hey, we want to be involved. They've been really good to work with. They've said, we're, we're happy to try and sell out the stadium for the benefit of those in our community who are doing life tough at the moment. So what is the deal here? You pay, well, you pay how much money, and, and what do you get for it? Well, you, you go to Sky Stadium's website, and as you would for any other event or any sporting event or concert, and you can buy your tickets through Ticketek, and you buy a numbered seat, and those seats have different um, prices on them, depending on the quality of the seat, as it always would at a stadium, or you can buy a corporate box if you're able to mm. extend that far, and you don't come. You don't go to the event. There will be something streamed from the stadium on the night, but there isn't an event that people go to. And it's very clear on the tickets that actually in doing this, you are helping those who particularly need help at this time of year in particular. But actually, this is the event that you don't go to. And the fact that people have got behind and supported what is quite a quirky idea, I've got to say, but an idea that might just be so quirky that it works. (laughs) Do you know how the ticket sales are going? Um, pretty, pretty well from what I hear. They've only just gone on sale. Mm-hmm. We've, we've also had you know, people like Low & Co who have billboards all around Wellington City and no one can drive around the city without seeing a Low & Co billboard. And they've given us those billboards for the next six weeks or so and they're advertising this event. So mm-hmm. the idea that we're getting together as a community to do something really good and to have a bit of fun at the same time. Uh, stay with us, Murray. I'm just going to bring Anjum Rahman in here. What do you make of this, Anjum? Well, there's two things, but before I go into those things, mm. first of all, well done. This is really um, great, innovative, and wonderful that people are supporting you. But what it brings home to me is that it is so sad 
that you have to do this because it means that our social support systems aren't working as they should. And what it means, you know, we're in a time of low unemployment. There's a whole thing around the shortage of workers. What this is meaning is that there's a lot of people in work who are in poverty, and and that is tied to the cost of housing being too high, the cost of food being too high. And I think, you know, charity as a model for delivering food security is really inadequate. I mean, there was a time after the Great Depression where collectively people agreed that food was a human right and that nobody should have to starve to death. And we seem to have lost that um, in terms of the way our systems are working. And so while I applaud all the efforts and please everyone buy the tickets, let's also think about, and I want to give you this Martin Luther King quote, Mm. where he says, true compassion is more than simply flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. So please be thinking about how do we restructure our economy so that these guys don't have to do this. Mm. Connor English, what do you make of this? Oh, look, I think it's a fantastic idea. Mm. Um, And look, given some of the weather we've had here recently, um, means you're not going to get wet. Uh, when you go to a, an event at the stadium. Listen, I heard that someone got sunburnt uh, at, the, <laughs> yeah, at the football the other day. So, you know, it, it, yeah. the sun does sometimes shine. But, you know, but I mean, Andam's got a point, hasn't she? That, you know, it's, it is pretty hard. You know, the city mission yep. is um, seeing, I think it's a quadrupling of the numbers of people coming forward. I mean, that is a pretty sad indictment. Yeah, it is. And, and, but I mean, it's, you know, we've talked about interest rates rising and the cost of living crisis. And, mm-hmm. and that's the very real impact of, you know, interest rates doubling, mm. is that people have to find more cash to pay their mortgage. And, uh, you know, you don't get another ten or 20000 extra in your salary to pay that. So, um, you know, there, there will be more working poor. There just will be. But I think as an event, this is a great innovative idea and, and I hope it goes really well for the city mission. Yeah, Murray, are you, um, are you concerned that people might actually turn up on the, on the night, even though it does say, you know, don't on the ticket? Oh, look, we, we, we certainly prepare for that and, and there'll be someone there to look after them if that happens. But we are encouraging people not to go. And, and, and the beauty of this is by not going, all of the money that, that people uh, spend on these tickets can go, can go to, to helping those who need it. And, and both um, Anjan and Connor are right. You know, we have a cost of living crisis in this country. Um, the government's acknowledged it now. It doesn't fall on us evenly, though. And we've got people who are doing life really hard. People who are employed and earning on a regular wage, but still doing life really hard. Mm. And um, and you know what this enables us to do is to assist them to to live into a better version of themselves. And um, it's a cool thing to be able to do. Who came up with the idea? We're doing some work with an amazing PR company called The Special Group, who are just awesome. And uh, in fact, they're so good that we couldn't afford them if we had to pay for them. And so they they do their work for us pro bono. They've just recently set up in Wellington. Such a cool idea. I must tell you a story. I, somebody mm-hmm. rang me today and said, I'm so excited by this. I've bought two tickets for my wife and I to go. Mm. And I sent her a message saying, we're, we're going to this event, or not going to this event on the 21st <laughs> of December. And she said, I'm, in t- I'm, I'm up north on, on that, uh, that ticket. I can't come. And he said, that's awesome. That's the whole you point. Don't need to. That's <laughs> the whole point. Yes, indeed. Oh, well, look, thank you very much for coming on RNZ National and for telling us about that today. Murray Edridge there from the Wellington City Mission. It's a pretty novel way to fundraise and to raise money, uh, of course, just before Christmas as well for the city mission. But what does it say about our society? Let me know. 2101. 
to get in touch with us in the studio this afternoon here on RNZ National. Now, something that we have been uh, talking about, uh, thinking about in the office, we were talking about this earlier, an interesting article that we saw in The Atlantic. Um, I'm interested to know what you think about this, panellists, uh, Connor and Anjum. Of course, the age of the pandemic, which we are still living in, for how much longer, who knows? Zoom, of course, uh, came into its own, reigning supreme. Um, have we all, though, as a result, started to absolutely suck at talking on the phone? Now, the article specifically argues that the first minute of every phone call is torture. It's, you know, oh, hang on a minute, I can't get the car Bluetooth to work, I don't know why it's not connecting, or, um, oh, wait a minute, I just need to put my AirPods in. Or you're clicking onto a speaker without realising, or the phone goes on speakerphone in your ear, and, you know... Is this a nightmare, Connor? Or do you not have this trouble? Uh, Well, look, modern technology, getting everything to coordinate, Mm. um, can be challenging, and you can be on a a, a Zoom call, and then you get a phone call, and Mm. it interrupts you. Um, But, yeah, I've actually used a telephone for voice more now, since the pandemic, because I've, instead of just texting people, I now actually ring them up. And have a, have a conversation with them. And during the pandemic, you knew they weren't uh, at, at the office, so to speak, or work. So you mm. sort of felt you had permission to ring them during the day if they're just friends, you know. Mm. Um, so I do more talking on the phone. Uh, but I can understand why um, people get frustrated with all the making sure the technology all coordinates and works together. Anjum, are you more technically um, together than I am on this? Um, you know, I read this and I my immediate reaction was, meh, who cares? The world, the world has evolved. This is the new world. This is how we interact now. It's our I new love... icebreaker. Instead of asking exactly. people how they are, you just say, oh, hang on a minute. My, my, hang on. I've, I've just tried, I'm trying to switch it off. Just, just hang on a sec. Yeah, and it leads you into the conversation. It gives you something to talk about at the beginning. But I love Zoom. I love being able to see a person mm. and talk to mm. them. I I tend not to do a whole lot of phone calls. Um, but, you know, I, I'm trying to think back to what life was like when we didn't have mobile phones and, and you had to, you know, a lot of people didn't have answering machines. And I remember reading somewhere that <laughs> so many romantic comedies of the 80s would be two minutes long if people had mobile phones. Oh, now that is so true. Trying to figure out meeting at the top of the Empire State Building or whatever, like you'd just be texting, you know, yeah, I'll be there, don't worry about it. Those those movies just must make no sense at all to the next generation, huh? (laughs) I reckon. But yeah, I mean, I just love what we can do now. And, you know, so many things. So many. Over COVID yeah. international events that I would never have been able to afford to attend, that I could take part in because they had to do them hybrid or they had to do them online. Um, but everything just felt so much more accessible. Of course, for people who, you know, there is the whole conversation around digital equity. Mm. Um, which we should have at some point, but on the whole, around this stuff, no, I'm good with it. <laughs> Video is good, isn't it? I mean, it is great yeah. when you see someone's face, and particularly family and friends. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it does absolutely shrink the world, doesn't it? Yeah, it Completely. does. Thank you very much, both of you, and uh, be interested to know your thoughts on that. Uh, is it awkward? Do you like bearing with someone? What's the best thing that you've heard when someone answers the phone? 2101.